Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. In this episode, I speak with Sonoma County Supervisor James Gore. It was a very timely conversation with California's historic and dangerous storms this week, as we talked about his work around disaster preparedness and climate resiliency, as well as his work to address the housing shortage here in California. We also talked about what makes county government so unique his leadership in the National Association of Counties, and why he believes that you can't have local control without local solutions. I hope you enjoy it. James Gore, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you. Really happy to be with you today. It is so fun to have you. I've been looking forward to this one. You are my first podcast taping after the new year. So maybe I'll start. Do you have any good New Year's resolutions to start off the bat here? Oh, gosh, I sure would love to create work-life balance. But as I'm always reminded, that balance is a verb. You don't just achieve it and sit on it. And right now we're sitting in the middle of another historic storm here in California. So fire, flood, earthquake, wind, we got it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. First of all, it's a great goal that I also strive for this year. But that, that's a perfect segue because that's what I wanted to start talking about with you. As I mentioned in my intro, you are a Sonoma County supervisor just north of me in California, one of the most beautiful spots in on the planet, by the way, Healdsburg, Sonoma area. Mm-hmm. But we are, as people know, all around the country, California has been prone to these fires increasing fires. And we are this week, as you noted, in the middle of this really historic storm that you guys are getting pounded with. This has been an issue you've cared a lot about for a long time, kind of disaster preparedness and, and resiliency. What what does that look like as a county supervisor? And when, what are you doing this week, for example? Well, I appreciate the way you say that, because a lot of people think of Sonoma, Napa, Santa Barbara, all these places as uh, the land of milk and honey and wine and cheese. And in many ways, that's that's the bounty. That's the beauty of, of it. But There's also the other side, which is, you know, we are in a crazy place where climate change is real and it's in front of our face and the extremes are are hammering us. So our rain and water systems are different than they've ever been, which impacts our wind and our fire situations. And we're always on the lookout for earthquakes. And so, you know, we deal with the four elements more directly and more, I guess you could say, personally than a lot of places do. And so being in a county where we run emergency services, And being in a county where we've had, I believe, with this flood that we have coming now, it's going to be our 10th disaster declaration and activating the EOC in the last five years, is that we are a battle-hardened bunch. We are leaning in with resilience, but we know that if we can't take care of this stuff, that all the other things that we want to deal with, all the societal reforms, all of the things that we want to do on the ground, we can't really move on them because we're always in a state of flux. So 
it's a passion. It's mandated by the world. It's bringing it to us. And we're proud to be in a situation where we're leaning in and we're one of the best in the be- that you could find in the country in terms of water security and reliability, fire preparedness, and all these other things. I know that you worked on this when you were, and you still may be, I'm sorry, we'll talk about your national NACO role later, but you were working with counties all across the state for a long time. And this was one of the issues that you spent a lot of time talking to other counties about, you know, like for other people in other parts of the country, like you mentioned some of it, water security, fire, what are some of those best practices that you are looking to encourage folks to do in their, in their communities? Well, you know, I appreciate this. You know, I consider myself a public servant first. You know, I'm a former Peace Corps volunteer. I've always just gotten engaged and cared and given a damn to the point where it hurts. So I just keep stepping up and getting involved. And so I had the chance to be elected by my peers throughout California to be the president of the California State Association of Counties, or 58 counties. And now I'm in the leadership to become the president of the National Association of Counties, which is a nationwide election. But You know, it's all about getting stuff done on the ground each and every day in our communities. I like to say as counties, we are the last bastion of basic democracy. We can't abstain from votes. We have to deliver programs. Anything that's not taken care of comes to us, whether it's homelessness, housing, water, erosion, anything under the sun. And so we've really leaned in. And it's been a beautiful thing because it's something that you can unite so many people around. We can all talk about the causes of climate change and the other things and where I believe they are. But at the end of the day, I got to work with whoever is in the room with me on drought, on management, on water, on fire security, on all these things. And then, you know, it's a beautiful way if you embrace the resilience world to also affect and really target the disproportionate impacts on our most vulnerable communities. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to just go run around and talk about equity as a human cause, which I believe in, but I'm able to really tag it to the issue of fire, flooding, pandemic response, and the affected communities. And it allows me to really focus on those areas. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I, I won't belabor, but I, I do want to say just as a fellow Californian, I think something people don't understand too is like, oh, because you mentioned drought, James. It's like, oh, you guys are in a drought and now you're getting rain. Isn't that great? And what people don't understand because of the fires, right? The fires, the, so- the soil is eroded and then we get these rains on top of these burn scars and there's when we get the mudslides and other things. So it's really, it really is just like, to your point, like all the elements at play here, isn't it? <laughs> well, it sure is. And if you look around this country, we have 3,000 in 69 counties, right? And out of those 3,069 counties, at any one time, any kind of sequence of two or three years, a third of those counties are under federal disaster designation. So when it gets to that point, isn't it just the new normal or is it the old normal and we've just changed the way we classify things? The reality is, is that mother nature is a little pissed off right now and probably for the right reasons. And we are still relying on a post-World War II community infrastructure. And many of us are leaning in and saying, we're going to take ownership of this and change the way and build the future. And other people are just fearful. So I choose to not subject my kids to a pessimistic future. That's why I get so busy on resiliency and in communities of need and other things and why I do this work. Yeah, well, I'm glad you are. And it is, as you point out, it's not going away anytime soon. So we better, we better deal with it. There's another issue that, you know, is an issue across the country, but it's certainly a big one here in California, which is affordable housing and homelessness. And that's, you know, again, I think people think of where, you know, this beauty that you live in and, and you know, forget that those problems exist there, too. So I know that's another issue where you've spent a lot of time trying to help. Tell us about what that looks like in your community and, and some of the solutions you're looking at. 
housing, homelessness, behavioral health, income inequality. You can't separate them completely. I mean, all these are systems issues, right? And we know we live in a state where if you look at places like Silicon Valley, Los Angeles, they're the epitome of paving over paradise. And that's why in the 70s and going forward, California implemented things that said all counties have to have general plans. You have to really plan out the way that you're going to grow your community. Now, what that did is it gave locals a lot of control. And locals and counties and in cities, they love local control. Be able to say yes to this project, no to that project. But one of the things that I have championed, even though I'm a local official, is challenging myself and my peers to say, you can't have local control if you don't deliver local results. It's really hard to get reelected sometimes when you put homeless solutions in neighborhoods or in city centers or out in rural communities. It's hard when you approve affordable housing projects. People are scared. I have never had a homeless solution or a housing project come before my board that has not had people come and say, I support this, but not here. So to me, what I say is, is that you have to have courage and you have to educate as you work through this. You have to tell people how you're working on it because you can't just be afraid of pissing off your constituents. You have to be able to lean in and say, I need you to lean in with me. And there's no way that I can make this stuff go away quickly. So, you know, we're really expanding more than any other county I see in California, but a lot of them are right there. We're purchasing with a program with the state. We have six different in our county project home key sites where it's permanent supportive housing for homelessness. We have affordable housing projects, but the problem is, is that there's also so much second homes being bought in my community Mm. that I can't regulate that. So there's some stuff that's structural and really issue-based, but you know, imperfect, relentless progress is the mantra we learned out of our fires, right? And so that's what we do. You do what you can. You keep leaning in. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, these are really, to your point, seemingly intractable problems, right? And so you kind of, you got to start somewhere. You got to get a little progress, even if, if, those, if those solutions aren't perfect. We got to no. be going in the right direction, right? I absolutely agree with that. You know, you, you talked a little bit about what makes counties so special. And I just kind of want to underscore that because you kind of really are, counties really are the last line of defense on so many things, right? Cities mm-hmm. have different jurisdictions over different things, but, you know, all of those safety net things really fall to the county. And I'm excited that you're so active with the National Association of Counties and that you're in leadership on the track to be president there. Like, how does that work? And how do you all work together? And what are some of the priorities that you're seeing kind of from counties across the country? Well, county government is a strange thing because there's a lot of people in this world who don't know what a county supervisor is, as we're called in California, or an elected county commissioner somewhere else, or as a police juror in Louisiana, as a freeholder, as they used to be called in New Jersey. Judges are elected to be judges in probate court, but also run counties in Texas and in Kentucky and other places. It's this this forgotten about place of government, right? Everybody knows what a mayor is, but not everybody knows what the chair of the board of supervisors is. And so, you know, you can't worry about that. What you got to do is you got to deliver. So by and large, counties deliver health and human services programs. That's half of our budgets around this country. So that's not just pandemic response and other things like that. That is all the welfare, the general welfare programs that go out into our communities, job link programs. We're the safety net of last resort for health and wellness, right? We run the majority of the hospitals and clinics in this country. We also run the majority or manage the majority of bridges and roads. And so investment in basic infrastructure. And at the same time, one of the things that I love about it is, is that I find that individuals, they have to run sometimes partisan races. They have to get into politics. But 
ultimately, they have to deliver on those things. They have to, at the end of the day, deliver. So in Sonoma County, we've got 26 departments, 4,000 employees, You know everything from the budgets for probation, the DA's office, the jail, sheriff's offices underneath us. So we have basic law enforcement. We have basic health and safety. We have basic infrastructure. So we're the last bastion of democracy in many ways. And while there's announcements that get made at the federal or state level on millions or billions of dollars, we're the ones who got to figure out if it's going to hit the ground and if it's going to impact people's lives, because that's what it's supposed to be about. Absolutely. And well, to that point, you know, there is a lot of money actually coming from the federal government that the Biden administration and Democratic Congress passed last session, whether it's through the American Rescue Plan or Bipartisan Infrastructure Act or or other ways. Are you able to take some of those investments and, and really address some of the needs in your community? What are you doing? What are you all looking at to do with some of that money? You know, you're hitting it right on the head. I mean, so as you say, ARPA, America Rescue Plan Act, you know, the the wonderful thing about ARPA is is that there was a direct allocation to counties, right? So what that allowed is, is that you didn't get lost in the land of compliance, which is grant writing, grant management, and other things. And usually when a federal program is announced, you have to have a litany of grant writers or contractors that you bring into a community to be able to ask for that money. And then you have to track it. And so, you know, we all want tax money to be spent in the right way, but we don't want to have 20 to 40% overhead and two years to get programs out once you have a congressman announce a program, right? That's the death of process, right? When product gets stuck by process. So for us, it's really important to try and leverage that kind of direct allocation that we had in America Rescue Plan over into bipartisan infrastructure plan, over into the Inflation Reduction Act work, right? Because a lot of those programs, you you and I know, Congress writes them, but then it takes a year or two for them to get written into statute in the federal register. And then how they get administered, whether it's grants or other things like that, is this kind of crazy gobbledygook. And I think it's just important for people to realize this is that out of the 3,069 some counties in America, probably 1,700 of those or more together are not the size of Los Angeles County, right? Of one county. And so what that means is that they don't have grant writers. They don't got grant managers. They don't got like all these systems in place. They don't have the capacity to be able to manage the complexity to get the money on the ground. So that's one of the biggest things that we do is like working with FEMA, working with NOAA, working with Department of Transportation and Energy to figure out how to get that money on the ground right. You know, directly with the White House in this case, you know, with intergovernmental affairs. They're the primary conduit for what's called the big seven, which is the counties, the mayors, the governor's association, all these other kind of intergovernmental partners. So, you know, there's a lot of work there, but we're seeing great wins, but more announcements than ever of millions and billions and trillions of dollars. But we all know that our constituents in our communities, they want to see it hit the ground. They want to see bridges being rebuilt. They want to see roads. They want to see cleaner energy, clearer skies, cleaner water. And so that's my commitment. Yeah, well, it's. I think it's an exciting time to be able to address some of those longstanding issues that existed before COVID, but I feel like we're exasperated or highlighted by COVID. And I kind of, you know, I'm excited to see what you all and your colleagues do around the country with this money, because I think it's really going to have such an amazing impact on people where they live. So keep us posted on your efforts with some of that money. I want to go back to the NACO. You said a couple of things when you were talking about NACO and how county officials work together and you know yes you sometimes run in partisan races but really at the end of the day you've got to deliver results because that's 
what counties have to do, you know, by statute and, you know, and because of the virtue that you're so close to the people that you represent, frankly. I'm just kind of struck by those comments juxtaposed with like what we're watching in Washington, D.C. this week. We're taping the week that uh, I think we're on vote 12 as we're taping uh, for the speaker. (laughs) So, you know, I'm just kind of curious about your take on all that. Fair disclosure to our listeners, you're you're a friend and we love talking politics. What's your take on kind of what's going on with our national politics and how we get back to, as a country, a little bit what you're talking about in terms of county officials of just being able to make government work? There's a certain degree of Congress with what's going on right now, which is theater. There's another part of it, which is the tyranny of the minority, right? When, you know, you have a very small representation that can hold out and try and negotiate things far beyond what the middle does. At the same time, what we're dealing with in this speaker race is a party on the Republican side that's unwilling to go to what I would call moderate Democrats or centrist Democrats to try and get those votes instead of going all the way far to the right flank, which is really something that started in the Gingrich kind of time and the contract for America was, you know, you have to only stay within your party, even if you might not be aligned with them in some ways. So, you know, it's that angst that's going on. It reminds me in a lot of ways of what's going on in the disasters, the climate disasters. We have societal uprising. We have political dysfunction. And a lot of the stuff that we see is is that we're in for five to 10 years of a lot of dysfunction. But at the same time, that's when opportunity arises. They talk about inflection points, catalyzing opportunities. Some people see these as fearful times. Some people see them as opportunity. You know, we in counties have more money and more resources and more control than we ever had, but the need continues to grow. So it's kind of like you have to decide how far do you go on putting the money from America Rescue Plan into universal basic income for individuals who were displaced during COVID and how much you put it toward bridges, roads, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, everybody has their choice about what are the bleeding needs in their community and what are the investments in the future. But I will say is, is that our work is not highlighted. It's usually on page six at best in a local paper, whereas the dysfunction of a 12th vote for a Speaker of the House is moment by moment. What's going on? What's been the change? What was the conversation you had at 1254 as opposed to 1252, right? So, you know, I think some of that exhausts people. I feel like 2023 is kind of like nobody's sprinting into the start of this year. There's this year of like, what's next? And kind mm-hmm. of this exhaustion and this retraction from the vitriol. But that's might just be my hope, because I'm somebody who tries to build better, right? Instead of continue to perpetuate chaos. <laughs> no, but it sounds like you have hope that we can get there as a country too, not just at the local level. Is that is that true? Absolute hope. And not whimsical optimism, but belief. Because I see it. I see it in my colleagues. I see it in these county officials that, you know, for instance, I'm a California guy and I'm a Democrat, but I'm, I, I usually call my political parties the get stuff done party too, right? And so if I need to cut a deal to get something delivered on the ground rather than like hold on to a partisan position or a platform, then I'm going to do that. And that's what I'm going to look back on. Not if my name's on a placard above a park or something like that, but if I delivered while I was here. And so I see it every day. And I really think about how that could break into the future in America. Because, you know, in my sense, I ran for, I'm a Democrat who from California, and I had the vote from Oklahoma, Texas, Florida, 
Wyoming, some very red places, but because I cared about their issues and because they were put in a situation where they were able to focus on partnership and not just partisanship, right? Sometimes it's the arena you're put in. Like for me to get hardcore Republicans who hate Biden to vote for me, right? Is kind of awesome, but it's also kind of sad that we don't see that outside in the other world. Yeah. Well, I hope we do get there. And I, it does give me hope that, you know, it's, it's still happening. I think, I think you're right. I think you're onto something about kind of the, also it's exasperated by the media. That's probably too light of a word because it is like, we have to dwell every day in the, in the conflict and the division and not celebrate the successes and the wins. And I think that's something we've got to do more of, you know, and it's why, well, it's why you're doing this podcast. That's you're right. talking about not just an, on, I mean, it's one thing to say an honorable pr- profession, but the reality is, is that we got to deliver and that's what people want to see at the end of the day. So we all know how it works, right? I mean, the system that's set up and that's in place, and even in a place like California, where one of the fastest growing parties is the decline to state or the no party preference model, right? There's a lot of people who are disenfranchised. And when I ran for office, you know, it's like I got votes from both parties and both sides. I always seem to have somebody running to the left of me and running to the right of me. But I don't qualify myself as a moderate or just a centrist or a progressive. Some people say I'm too progressive. Some people say I'm too moderate. But the reality is, is is that I want to deliver. And I think every public official needs to have that be their litmus test, not how many bills they proposed, but how much change happened in people's lives while they were there. Absolutely right. And the truth is, I mean, and I appreciate you saying that about the podcast because I actually, you know, I'm a chief cheerleader for people who step up and run for office because it's often thankless and increasingly, you know, dangerous, frankly. And I, I don't really know a single person. I know a lot of elected officials over this country and they get into this business because they want to do something, right? They don't get, you know, but no. lead people to public service. So let's, let's talk about that for you, actually. So was this something, you know, I know you started in the Peace Corps right after college. Was it always your ambition or your interest to kind of do public service or how did you find yourself in this line of work? Honestly, I tried other things. I did not have a aspiration to get into politics and run for office. What happened was, is I was always searching. I I couldn't explain it in the past, but it wasn't just ambition. I'm addicted to having soul in my work, right? You know, I even grew up in a family that that was in the wine industry, grew grapes, make wine. Many people consider that to be beautiful and passionate and all these other things. But to me, I love it. I love wine. We make wine, but that's not my core focus because I want to make sure that each and every day I'm just connecting. I'm a part of the change I want to see in the world. And no matter where that came from, whether it was my grandma and my mom grew up by raised by powerful, you know, awesome women who looked at me and say they wanted me to be a part of changing the world with them, you know, or whatever it was, is that beliefs there? And I just try to spread that to others too. Because right now we got some wackadoos running for office. I know that might not be the couth way to say it, but you know, even in my community, I got people who are running because they're hateful and they're pissed. And it's not just because there wasn't something delivered at a park or whatever. And we have on the other side, not as much as the wackadoos running, but we got a lot of really good people who say they would want to run and want good people and they're engaged, but they just won't run. And so to all the public servants out there, I salute you and I thank you for your service. And this is a big issue that we need to face over the next five to 10 years. It really is. It really is. You mentioned the Peace Corps. 
What did being in the Peace Corps kind of bring to your perspective about being a local elected official? What you were in Bolivia, if I, if I recall correctly. Service above self. There's a certain degree of service that comes with a high degree of sacrifice. And so in one way, you would say, yeah, well, you get sometimes a headline or, or anything. But, you know, when I ran for office, my family and I, and, you know, we had to realize is that there was going to be a huge impact on our family. For example, right now, I have a restraining order against somebody who's threatened my family. And my kids' names are in that restraining order. When I was in the court getting that, it brought me to tears to think that my profession and my work has pushed the point to where my kids are written into a restraining order, right? And yet at the same time, I kind of go back into the Peace Corps and into the Times, and I just think it's not about you. You have to go into a community or your community. You have to have your ideas and be passionate about them, but you got you got to see where the buy-in is. you got to see what people want to see get done, right? you got to get back to the basic federal level of the work that you have to achieve. And so I would just say that that's, I think, the difference between politicians and public servants is the degree of sacrifice that they take on and the burden and the weight, and then to try and figure out how to manage that. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. And I can't thank you enough for that public service that you're doing in your beautiful part of the world. And for, you know, the leadership you're taking at the county level across the country, as you talked about. So helpfully for people, like really counties are kind of special. (laughs) And it's great to talk a little bit about the the great work that they do there. And I thank you. You thanked everybody else. I thank you for your service. And, you know, it's just so heartening to see people who are so passionate about delivering results and getting things done in these roles. And so thank you for all you're doing. I appreciate you in many ways. You know, I, when some of us, we had a conversation, we said when we were younger, it was all about passion. And then that transformed into purpose. And at this point it's resolve, right? Because it's not just being fired up, but it's more about steady hands as we go through this storm and these stormy times. And so the future has to be bright. We have to believe it to manifest that. So you're doing a huge amount to help set that foundation for the future. I'm a proud member and excited to join you today. Thanks so much, James. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.